All right, we're going to get into the Word. Uh, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to look at one single verse again, uh, just like last week. Uh, today it's going to be Ephesians 4, verse 31. Verse 31, I'll read it for us. It says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. A simple verse dealing mostly with sins of relationship. These are the kinds of things that, that we can do as human beings to one another. And so I'm going to spend the first part of this, this message just giving you some insight into each of these words, but then the last part of the message will shift gears and really kind of get down to how we can overcome these things. So first, let's look at the word uh, bitterness. Bitterness is what happens to our hearts when we hold a grudge, when we refuse to forgive. Uh, we might think of the word uh, bitter in, you know, think of a bitter herb, right? Or something that we eat that just tastes bitter. It, it, it causes our, our taste buds to almost shiver. Uh, I mean, there can be a good bitter with food, but we uh, know that bitterness of heart really means sourness of heart. When someone important to us Usually we don't get bitter at people that are strangers, right? Uh, when someone important to us, like a mother or a father or a sibling or a pastor or a child, a boss, a friend, a spouse, does something to wrong us, bitterness can set in if we don't forgive deeply from the heart. The bitter person just won't let it go. They rehearse the wrong done against them over and over and over in their mind or with their mouths. In most cases, the person who wronged them maybe never admitted or never apologized, never showed any remorse, and this refusal of the person to see their wrong begins to eat the bitter person up. They can't move on, and they hold the ill feeling. People who are bitter remember. They keep a record of wrongs, like it talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. The bitter person strangely spends enormous mental and emotional energy thinking about the person they're angry with. You know, thinking, I can't, I just can't believe them. I can't, how could they do this? I just can't get over how completely wrong they were, how hurtful they were. The constant rumination creates a sourness of spirit, a disdain toward the person. Let's call it what it is. I know we don't really use this word in Christian circles, but it's, it's actually hate. That's what it is. It's interesting how bitter people would say, oh, I don't hate the person. 
I don't hate them. It's just that, you know, and then they go off on their bitter rant about the person. But it's actually hate. Any number of things might trigger their memory of this person that they hate, and instantly their sweet demeanor becomes sour. Has that ever happened to you in conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden this person comes, and they just change. You can see it come right over their face. I think about how through the years, Tiffany and I would run into people who left our previous church. This was many years ago, like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. How they, people who would leave that church in a bad way. I wasn't the lead pastor of that, that church. I was just one of the ministry staff. And even though they had left maybe 10 years prior, 15, 20 years prior, they spoke about the hurt in such a way as though like it happened yesterday. Somehow they kept it fresh. Year after year after year. It was still right there. How? By nursing it. Bitter people get more bitter and eventually, listen, aren't bitter at merely one person, but all people who are like that one person. You know, like maybe they were bitter at a type A personality or this person who is very intellectual or somebody who is successful or maybe a homeless person or uh, maybe somebody with a particular political bent or somebody from a particular town or a particular uh, subculture or color of skin or gender. Their bitterness toward that one person extends kind of slowly out to all people who are like that person. Have you seen that? I think we've all seen that in people. I've seen bitterness take out more Christians than any other single sin. I would say it's taken out more ministers. Ministers have dropped out of ministry from bitterness more than sexual sin, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, a lack of integrity with finances, all put together. Bitterness is the single killer of ministers. Maybe because they're so woven into the relationships within, within a community. And ministers do take a lot. <laughs> they, they take a lot of hits. They take a lot of um, junk from people. And sometimes it takes its toll and bitterness can creep in. Scripture refers to a root of bitterness that can be in us so that we always need to be watching out for that, that root. Let's look at the next word, wrath, which means extreme anger. Related words would be fury, rage. Wrath is what happens in a domestic abuse situation. A husband, for example, becomes so enraged that he starts throwing things, knocking things over. He knocks over the dinner table. He punches his wife in the face. He uses force to intimidate and control. The wrathful person will blow up and scream in the face of somebody they're angry with. It often involves excessive cursing 
as well, cursing the person out. Wrath is what happens in road rage incidents. We probably at least, maybe we've seen some of those situations, but we've at least heard about them. It's not just a moment of annoyance or an angry sigh as we're driving, as somebody does something that we don't like on the road, but the anger is so flared so quickly, it will try to run somebody off the road. It will take a crowbar out of a trunk and smash the person's windshield or pound uh, the hood of the car. Wrath is what leads to most murders. Just this week, there was a murder at the food court you probably heard about. A 19-year-old was stabbed. And then there was, I didn't read the article, but I've heard, uh, you can fact check this later, but I think there was some kind of retaliation and someone was shot uh, later. I don't think they were killed, but I think they were shot in the head. People get so infuriated, so explosively angry that they will kill. The anger reaches a tipping point of fury and a desire to eliminate the person. In extreme cases, torture and then kill the person. I've not seen any manifestations, thankfully, of wrath in the church. Uh, Though I do remember one person being so angry at a particular sermon that I preached, I thought that they were going to kill me. And they came up to me afterward And uh, I've never felt somebody so angry at me. Um, It's a long story. But but I have heard of, in other churches, physical fights breaking out, you know, in uh, business meetings and elder meetings. I've heard of pastors being punched in the face. (laughs) Um, But I do know that there are cases, because I've heard about them and have counseled people, where there has been wrath behind closed doors in Christian homes. Physical, mental, verbal, psychological abuse, sometimes cloaked in Scripture. Wrath is when someone overwhelms another person with physical or emotional or verbal force to terrify them, to intimidate them. Wrath has no place for the Christian ever. Let's look at the next word, anger. I talked about this a few weeks ago in depth, so I'm just going to touch on it here. Um, Anger is how we respond to situations, particularly how we respond when others wrong us or don't do what we want them to do, right? Some measure of anger is appropriate. We kind of talked about in that message a few weeks ago for certain situations, but the angry person is always quick, to anger, instead of being slow to anger. The angry person has an unhealthy insistence upon his or her own rights, a deep sense of entitlement. They would call it justice, of course, but they have unrealistic demands of other people. They think of themselves very highly, and anyone that doesn't treat them with the respect that is due them, watch out. They will be angry. Angry people, as I said a few weeks ago in the message, are not pleasant to be around, whether it's at home or in the workplace, even through a Zoom call, I guess, right? 
on a sports team, a coach that you have, a teacher, you always feel on edge around the angry person like anything could possibly set them off. And you find yourself stressed out about not doing anything or saying anything that will, will kind of set them off. Now, Christians should be the absolute opposite of this. We should be meek, submissive, kind, patient, slow to anger, quick to listen. Christians should be famous for being slow to anger. Amen? Now let's look at this next word that we don't use too often, clamor. It's a word that means loud, public outburst. I have seen this so many times on the street in front of the church. Uh, maybe you have too. I mean, just because I'm here more than most of you, I've probably seen more than uh, most of you. But I mean, I, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a guy, you know, we always usually go to the window to try to see what's happening and kind of look down there. But I was actually in the parking lot and there was a guy just across the street, and I couldn't see the guy who was screaming at, it must have been a few hundred yards, but just screaming, cursing at the top of his lungs at another person. I don't know what the context was. But clamor is when a person gets angry and expresses it by loudly yelling his complaint. I think of how in the 70s, some of you remember John McEnroe, the tennis player, would often do this on the tennis court when there was like the, 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 the judge would do a, you know, make a certain call that he didn't like and he would flip out, break tennis rackets, scream, yell, curse. I mean, just call the guy out publicly. It wasn't enough to just, uh, you know, quietly be upset by the call. This happens in baseball games. You've probably seen coaches coming, flying out of the dugout, just start screaming at the umpires. Clamor is loud and angry. It's the outraged woman in a store loudly yelling at the cashier about something, some price that was wrong, and just kind of demeaning the cashier. Or someone making a scene publicly in a store because they don't want to wear a mask. Have you seen those videos on YouTube? I mean, they're entertaining, but they're, they're actually pretty sad. Clamor has an element of utilizing social shame to bring a person down. The clamorous person doesn't speak privately to the one they're angry with or just think angry thoughts quietly and privately. They announce it publicly. They shout their criticism from the rooftop in an effort to rally others into feeling as they do and to perhaps embarrass or socially demean the person. This kind of behavior has no place in the Christian at all. And again, I would say I haven't seen a whole lot of clamor amongst Christians, though it does happen on occasion. Let's look at the word slander. I'm going to spend a little longer on this one because it's more in-depth and a little trickier. It's a very familiar word, not just to those who are Christian, but also people in society. It is persuasively speaking to others about a person in such a way that discredits them. It usually has an element of exaggeration to it, or at least is out of proportion, focusing only on the negative qualities. It's when we talk about an individual in a way that embitters others 
and kind of causes other people to not like the person. The sin of slander isn't satisfied with hating someone privately. It insists on bringing others into the hate. The sin of slander is when we speak evil of a person to others. We badmouth them. But we can also sin when we listen to slander. This is where it gets tricky. If you've been in a situation when someone is complaining about a person that you are very fond of or you're close with, it's like they're trying to talk us out of liking the person. It, it, it's not out of loving concern, though. It has a little, a little spite to it, a little bite to it. Maybe exaggerated. It's definitely not necessary to know all the things that they're sharing with us about this person. And listen, when a person slandered finds out that they were slandered, because they usually do find out, it will wound deeply. This can be tricky because our desire to be good listeners and to be empathetic can put us in situations of engaging in listening to slander. Sometimes we aren't immediately aware that slander is happening, right? The conversation at first seems sincere, not of genuine concern, uh, but then you start to smell the slander. It becomes awkward to back out at that point, but I think we have to learn to say, you know, I think you should talk to this person directly. I'm not sure if it's that helpful to tell me all this. Just, you know, have you talked with them? Have you talked with this person that you're upset with? Encourage. Have you talked to the Lord first? Uh, that can be a tough, kind of awkward thing to say, but it's really important to, to have the courage to do that and just tell the people, I, you know, I don't think this is healthy or comfortable for us to be talking about this. Amongst Christians, slander is usually packaged very spiritual, right? Hey, I really need your wisdom. Hey, we need to pray for this brother. Here's what's going on. Here's my advice. If you are upset with someone, do not talk with anyone until you talk it through with God and receive a fresh baptism of love. In most cases, after doing that, you won't even need to discuss the matter with anyone else. And it, or if you do, because it's a really complicated situation, maybe, you will be guided by great love. Now, all this requires discernment because, listen, there are times when it is good and right to inform someone regarding the poor character of an individual. And I'll give you some very tangible examples. This takes discernment, understanding when it's slander and when it's not. If, for example, you dated a guy who put sexual pressure on you, you know, he called himself a Christian, but he found, he found out he was actually abusive. He was nice in public, but uh, when you got to know him, it wasn't so nice. Outwardly, he's perceived by others as an all-around nice guy. One of your close friends now develops an interest in him. It would not be slander to carefully warn your friend about this individual. It requires wisdom and love to do this in a way that doesn't foster hate, but it wouldn't be slander. Or let's say we used a contractor that ripped us off and did a terrible job. We notice our neighbor 
getting an estimate to do some work by the same contractor. It wouldn't be slander to share with your neighbor some of your experiences with the contractor in order to protect them. That's actually being a good neighbor, right? Or let's say we know that a person in the church has been scamming people, which has happened. We see some well-intentioned church folks with big hearts being pulled into the scam. It's not slander to try to warn them about this individual. Or let's say, one last example, a person at Wren uh, stirred up much division, created problems, kind of like nightmare church member, and they leave in a bad way, and they start attending another local church. But let's say they're very, you know, charismatic and kind of gifted, and because they're naturally talented, they become a candidate, let's say, to be on staff at this other church. And so the pastor calls me up, very impressed with this individual, and asks me if I would recommend the person for this staff position. It would not be slander for me to share with this pastor some of my honest concerns. Are you understanding how this can be a delicate uh, thing that really requires discernment? So you might ask, what is slander? How can we tell? Here's how someone once put it. These are some good questions to ask yourself before you're about to speak negatively about another person. Number one, is it true what you're about to say? But number two, is it, is it kind? Do I feel enough of the love of God in me that I can say this negative thing about this person in a way that is kind? Thirdly, even a little deeper, is it necessary to share this piece of negative information with this person? And I would add to kind of probe even deeper, what's my motive right now for sharing this piece of information? Those are good heart-searching questions to ask ourselves before we speak. All right, one last word. Let's look at the the word malice. This is a mindset or action of payback, retaliation. There's no regard for God's justice, God handling things. Even like scripture talks, talks about so much, First Peter 2, Romans 12, you know, just it's the Lord's job to bring justice. We don't have to, we don't have to take it into our own hands. But malice says, you know, because this person did this thing to me, I'm going to get them back. Because malice is so natural to the human heart, a person is often not even aware that they are being malicious. Malice isn't always direct, like punching a person's teeth out because, you know, you're mad at them. It often takes subtle forms, especially in the church. Acts of malice sometimes can be played out over years. The malicious person will slowly, methodically carry out a plan to destroy someone else's business or reputation or whatever. In a work situation, a malicious boss will block you from pay raises and promotions. A child that is malicious toward his or her parents will find the most important thing in their parents' lives and seek to tear it up. That's malice. If you saw the movie Little Women, I don't know if uh, the original movie had this or if it was in the book, 
I'm sure some of you know, but malice was when the angry little sister took her older sister's prized possession, writings, all of her writings. She was a writer and threw them into the fire. And there was no backup documents on Google or anything like that. I mean, it was like, it was a painful scene to watch. Often, and this, that example fits this perfectly, often the malicious person wants to make the payback severe. Malice can happen in small ways as well. Let's say we are mad at our roommate. We know it bothers them when we leave dirty dishes in the sink. Well, we leave dirty dishes in the sink to kind of spite them. We can do some of these little things, little spiting things so subtly that we're not even aware that we're doing them. We have to be very sensitive, always searching our heart. Or we're mad at the email someone sent us, so we just don't respond back at all. Sometimes after a breakup or a divorce, malicious people will post pictures on social media of their new love with captions like, I never knew I could be loved this way. That's ugly. Malice is utterly unchristian. It's just opposite of Christian and should have no place in our lives. Well, Paul says, put all of these away. Kill them. Don't be like that anymore. He urges us to put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, clamor, and malice. Kill them. Put to death that which belongs to your earthly nature. There's a sort of urgency to the command. Now, even as Christians with a new nature, let's be honest, with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, right, which we have, we're regenerated, we can still easily fall into these things, into bitterness toward people. We have anger issues. We can become petty, jealous, malicious, passive-aggressive. We all experience being hurt, being wrong, being betrayed, being wounded by people. Uh, no one is exempt from these things, and we're all tempted at times to respond the wrong way. Can I get an amen? Amen. I'm glad it's not just me. It's the human condition. We're born in sin. We're born with a propensity toward these things. And, you know, someone said, if you want to be bitter, when you get hurt, do nothing. Do nothing, and you will be bitter. Like, you have to work at grace. You have to work at mercy and forgiveness. We have to work against our nature. Like it says in First uh, Peter chapter 2, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's not just talking about sexual lust. It's talking about the, our whole sinful nature, which tries to war against us. It's a daily fight. So we need to work at it. What is needed continually in our lives is renewal and the infilling of the Spirit. We can't simply grit our teeth and overcome these things. We must receive love from God. It's the only way. In my, in my life, I have overcome only by coming to the Lord, almost pathetically at times, and just crying out to God and asking for a fresh infilling of the Spirit. We can't just drum up divine love 
out of a sinful heart. Love comes from above. It's shed abroad within us through the Holy Spirit. And maybe this sounds, you know, too simple, but I've really found no other way to appropriate God's love other than just by crying out to the Lord, just coming to him and, and just saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, we set aside our self-righteous attitudes and just admit that our, our human love is deficient. This is the only way I know, just coming to the Lord in weakness and just calling out to him. Jesus, fill my heart. And it, listen, it doesn't take like 60 seconds. To Sometimes it takes like hours, days sometimes. He's just praying, God, I still feel the residue of this thing in me. God, just flush it out. Drench me with your love. And you just keep seeking until that breakthrough comes and he kind of floods the heart with his divine love. Our human love, it's just small. It just can only handle so much, you know? It's fragile. It cannot overcome hate. We need the divine love described in 1 Corinthians 13. It's interesting in in, in 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul describes in that chapter the most spectacular expressions of human love, right? He says, if I give away all I have and deliver my body, kind of sacrifice my life into the flames, but have not God's love. I gain nothing. What? He says that we can, we can give everything we have and even sacrifice our own lives, but if we have not God's love, we have gained nothing. Human love accomplishes nothing. He calls it a clanging symbol. Well, the reality is we've all been hurt. We've had conflicts. We've had fallouts with people. When we see their face in our mind or or we run into them in the grocery store, right? This is Rhode Island. I always tell people that. Like, you can't. You're going to run into them. You, can't, you may be mad right now. You got you to you deal with this because you will see them. You'll see them on the street. You'll see them at Target. You'll see them, you'll see them at the Providence Place Mall. You're going to run into them. You want to be right with everyone. But if you do see their face in your mind or run into them in the grocery store, what happens? Do you wince? That was the word that came to my mind, this word. I looked it up. And wince means a slight involuntary grimace or shrinking movement of the body to draw back in fear or distaste. Wince is an involuntary physical reaction. You know, it's kind of like what a, what a child does. And if you try to be tricky with a tri- child, giving them bananas, 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 and then, then you sneak in some peas and all of a sudden the face just, you know, crinkles. Oh, no, it's a, they, they don't even know. They're not even deciding to do that. It's just in them. It's an instant reaction reveal, revealing what is within. Let me probe a little, little deeper with this kind of hypothetical experiment here. Imagine being brought by the Holy Spirit into a room alone and shown certain slides. A picture of the beach is shown, and you love the beach, and so you feel peaceful. A picture of your hometown is shown. Maybe you feel nostalgic. A picture of a product you consumed as a child, maybe a certain toy or, or, or a cereal that you loved, and you feel like warm and fuzzy, right? A picture of your grandma gardening is shown. Your affection is so strong, get a little teary. Each picture is shown for about five seconds, 
And then the face of that person who wronged you is shown. For 10 seconds. For 30 seconds. 60 seconds. It's not going away. It's not going away. What happens within? Do we squirm? Do we have a hard time looking at the picture for any length of time? Do we find ourselves rehearsing immediately what the person did to us? Are we overcome by negative emotion? Or do we feel deep love for this imperfect person who is made in the image of God? I want to make this statement. There should be no face projected before us that we feel ill toward. When Jesus hung on the cross, the faces of those who crucified him were, were right there. They're about as probably, you know, Jeff and Julia, like right, just a few, maybe even closer. They were right there, right before him. He did not wince. He did not hate. He did not recoil in distaste. He did not scowl at them. In fact, famously, he said, Father, forgive them. It's not that Jesus was ignorant of what they did or, or didn't think it was a big deal what they did. Fine, whatever. They falsely arrested me. They beat me. They flogged me. They mocked me. They ripped out my beard. They crucified me, even though I never sinned. No big deal. I don't think, I think it was a big deal. They killed God in the flesh, tortured and killed God in the flesh. But such is the love of Christ. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, think about when Jesus was moved with compassion at the crowds. You know, we read these things and we don't really, like, think about them. We don't really process them fully. He knew the hearts of every single person in the crowd. He knew those who hated him. He knew those who were tearing him apart behind his back. He knew those in the crowd who were plotting to kill him. But he was moved with compassion. The Bible says he wept over Jerusalem. For who? For the Jews who hated him without reason. He was weeping and longing and feeling love for people who did not deserve it. That's, that love in Christ is what we need in us. It is actually that. Not just we should be like that. No, we need that. Lo actual, tangible, real love of Christ in us, working through us. We see this in Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians. In his letter to the Romans, he speaks of his constant sorrow, unceasing anguish over the Jews, over the Jewish brothers who, remember, who had, had beaten him with rods, flogged him repeatedly, slandered him, hated Paul, put him in prison, wanted to kill him. Paul was not suffering from memory loss regarding all that they did to him, but it was this love of Christ in him 
that compelled him to want to see blessing for those who hurt him the most. The love of Christ in us enables us to look at even our worst enemies and desire good for them. Instead of desiring ill for them, we long to be gracious. We feel genuine mercy. We find our hearts longing for this person's good. And this is what I pray for us. This is my prayer for Ren Ren Church. I don't want our love, listen, I don't want our love to be a, a sort of thin, plastic love, you know, that we're careful to keep our mouth shut and, and be well-behaved and outwardly shiny. I, I don't want us to be the kind of people, almost like actors and actresses, who, who, who sort of pretend to love everybody in the whole world, but inside, <laughs> totally different story. No, we want to be the same outwardly and inwardly. We want that love to be deep from the heart. Do you know the way most people cope? This will be my last thought. With hurts. And Christians are definitely not exempt from this at all. They just cut people out of their heart. They might not think about the person enough to become bitter, but they just make the person dead to them. I just, I'm done with that person. I'm not going to think about that person. I'm not even going to pretend they don't even exist. They forget the person they hate. They cut them out. They break up with people. They unfriend them. They quit jobs. They transfer schools. They leave churches. Some people even move across the country to try to get away from the person that they don't like. We see this scene in movies, right? Uh, it just seems like a, a common scene in movies when uh, someone is at the place of, like, canceling another person, and they just, they're done with another person. And the, the scene shows uh, them with this person that they're upset with in a framed picture, right? You know, with their arm around each other, looking happy. And so they take the framed picture they take the picture out of the frame, and then what do they do? Scissors come out, and they cut the person's face right out of the picture. And then they put the picture of just them or just them and another person back into the frame. That's pretty much the best that we can do apart from God's love to overcome hate. The problem with this effort to just forget people is we can't forget. It's not possible. We can try. We try to bury, we bury hurts into the ground, but you know how it is. Like things remind us of people. Things will trigger a memory of that person and the hurt that they did. We can try to bury our hurts into the ground of our hearts, but we will find that they take root and eventually spring up and ruin us spiritually unless God's love is applied. Only God can pull bitterness up from the root. So let's continually ask God for fresh infillings of his love. It's the only way. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. Let's worship. You guys can stand.